John 3, 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or goes where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Charlotte. Come on. Give it up for Charlotte. <laughs> Did you notice the undulation as she was reading? Her, her tone and pitch moving around. That means that she really studied it and understands it. She wasn't just reading it. That's pretty cool. Uh, also, uh, in first service as she was reading, I was thinking to myself, I, believe it or not, I can multitask a little bit. But I was, as I was listening to God's word, I was also thinking to myself, it would be cool if we had a dual reading one day where Charlotte was reading and Ben Bear was reading. <laughs> kind of have the whole spectrum for those of you that know Ben. Anyway, uh, if you're new here, we're glad that you are here. My name is Frank, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Arcadia. If you're wondering why Redemption Church always has a geographical location in its name, uh, the reason is because we're actually one church with nine and soon to be ten congregations in uh, Arizona. And so uh, we are planning a new congregation. <laughs> a weird time to be planning a new congregation, but that is underway right now. It's Redemption North Phoenix, and they're actually going to go live. They're meeting and everything, but they're actually going to go live in January, and they're going to be meeting at um, a school up on Cactus in about 25th Street. Uh, that'll be their, their uh, starting home. But... Um, we're one church with 10 local congregations in and around Arizona. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus, and we are gospel-centered, and we are outward-focused. And so um, we're, we're glad you're here. Welcome. If you have any questions, you can talk to me. There's three other pastors as well. Tyler, who is uh, leading us today, Trey, uh, and Tyler James, who's our family pastor, but he's on vacation this week. And then we have a, a bunch of other people that are on staff, and they'd be glad to help you if you have any questions or anything uh, that you'd like to know about. Uh, because of uh, the pandemic, obviously we are kind of on this slow roll, slow, responsible role of, of regathering and meeting again. You notice we don't have anywhere near as many chairs as we normally have in here, and we're asking people to wear masks while we're in here as well. Um, but because of that, we've also changed a lot of other things. We're, we're doing our services, our order of services are a little bit different, a little bit more simple. And as such, that means I get to do most of the announcements now. We used to have a host that did that, and we've cut that out for the time being. So uh, endure with me some announcements. First of all, if you're on our email list, you should have received an email Friday night or Saturday morning from us uh, that contained a video from me. Uh, that is, is, it's a video actually about masks and, and what's going on with masks and where we are as a local congregation, uh, where we think we're going and what we're trying to do about it. And the video is 32 minutes long. And I know some of you are like, how did you ever find 32 minutes worth of content on masks? Well, believe me, there is, uh, especially when you mix in scripture and try to also help lead and form some attitudes about it. But I would encourage you, please take the time. I know it's 32 minutes. Um, skip an episode and a half of The Office and watch this video. I think it will be helpful to you. It'll answer a lot of questions, and maybe it'll also save us, all of us, a lot of time as well uh, so that we have a better understanding of it. There's, there's just been so much discussion about it. In fact, people are now referring to this video in texts and emails and 
conversations with me, they're referring to it as Frank's M&M video. And you have to watch the video to find out what that, what that means. But it's Frank's M&M video. So anyway, uh, watch that <coughs> video, please. And then let me talk about um, what we're doing on Wednesday nights. I've been very excited with, uh, in, in August, we sort of uh, restarted our Wednesday night and Thursday night content. And right now, it's really focused on Wednesday night. I've been very excited with what we've been doing. Last Wednesday night, Tyler led a thing on um, the theology of worship, which was absolutely magnificent. It was so good that I'm begging him to do at least three or more, three or four more sessions on the theology of worship. Um, we've done parenting. We've done some frankly speaking stuff. It's been really, I think, very helpful. But I'm really excited about the lineup that we have in October. Uh, and I want to tell you a little bit about what we're doing in October. So starting this Wednesday, October 7th, what we decided to do, we thought we would tackle something that was way less controversial than masks. We thought we would talk about the election in 2020 and the church. So that's not going to be, that's not going to be a problem at all. And so uh, what we're going to do is Steve Wheeler, myself, and Chuck Coughlin, who is a political consultant here in Phoenix, longtime political consultant, very influential, and who also attends Redemption Arcadia, we're going to have kind of a panel discussion. And Wheeler, if you know anything about Wheeler, he's got questions. He's got more questions than we're going to be able to have a panel discussion that we hope will lead to some understanding of how we should be as, as God's people approaching this very difficult season of the election. Uh, so that's on the 7th. On the 14th is my, personally my favorite uh, one that we're going to be doing. It's going to be the challenge of reality and disillusion, meaning the disillusion of meaning. Um, I know that just sparked excitement in you guys. I can see that. You're so excited about this. Anyway, um, I'll give you a little precursor on this. Um, I'm, I got this idea from a book that was written in 2010 by James Davidson Hunter called um, uh, To Change the World. Uh, and it's only a small part of the book where he talks about disillusion. But that started me and many other people in the disciplines of, um, of uh, psychology, sociology, philosophy, and communication, human communication theory, which is where uh, I am in addition to theology. Uh, this, this discussion about the challenges of digital communication and social media. And we've been talking about this now for 10 years, mostly falling on deaf ears. Some of you know that recently, uh, Netflix did a, um, a documentary called The Social Dilemma. Uh, there's a little bit of cynicism with those of us uh, who have been talking about this for 10 years. We're a little disappointed that Netflix suddenly comes out with a documentary and now everybody's interested in this issue of disillusion. Um, we decided to do this disillusion thing before we knew anything about the Netflix uh, documentary, but I think the timing is good for it. Because if you watch that documentary and then listen to what we have to say on disillusion on the 14th, um, we're not saying you shouldn't be on social media and you shouldn't use uh, digital communication. That would be impossible, okay? What we are saying is that you need to be aware of the challenges and the problems and the pitfalls. And, and this is a way to be able to discuss that. So I've been, I've been in, this, in this world for 10 years. I think it's going to be really interesting, but it's going to be a little bit more of a lecture. Again, you can come in person, you can watch on the live stream, or you can watch it, uh, the recording of it later on our YouTube channel. And then the last two Wednesdays in October, we're going to do, some of you know that I do a lot of stuff on marriage. I love doing uh, marriage. Uh, that sounds weird that I would say this, but... I really do love doing marriage counseling because I find that it can be very helpful. Uh, it is challenging, but I'm, I'm also, I just feel like God has led me into this area to be able to do some. Now, understand, it's not clinical counseling, it's pastoral counseling. But as a result, I also do a lot of marriage retreats and, and uh, marriage conferences and things like that. So I have a lot of material, biblical material on marriage. And I've discovered over the last seven months that this pandemic and the lockdown and everything has been very challenging to many marriages. And so we're going to do two weeks on taking the, what I know about marriage theologically and condensing it into a two-week presentation on how do you navigate marriage during the pandemic. And so it's material that is specifically geared to our current context. And so I would encourage those of you who are, who are married and who um, are thinking about married and who would like to be married and, and who would not like to be married, even you, especially if you're married, I would encourage you to come to this, um, 
to these, or at least tune in on the live stream. So all of that out of the way now. Let me pray, and we'll get into John chapter 3. And I would encourage you to have your Bibles open to John chapter 3. Lord God, again, <laughs> we love the fact that your word is true and that it's filled with an understanding of grace, both truth and grace. And so as we approach your word, we understand that we are approaching something that has authority in our lives, and we should submit to it, but also wrestle with it and try to understand it. And so as we do that today, as we proclaim your good news, but also wrestle with the reason we need good news, which is that we're fallen and we're sinful, I pray that your Holy Spirit, who is with us here and now, that we would welcome your Spirit, that your Spirit would fill us so that what we hear, what we see, what, what our hearts and our minds digest and interpret would be guided by your spirit and not just by the human vessel that's delivering these words. That's our prayer today. So in that respect, move me out of the way so that you are heard and that you can move. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're working our way through the Gospel of John. It's going to take us a while. We're hoping we can finish by the end of next year. We'll have some intermittent things like Advent and stuff. Um, today and for the next two Sundays, we're going to spend in one of the most famous chapters in all of scripture, which is John chapter 3. And for the next two weeks, today and next week, we're going to be looking at this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And right away, some people have said, why aren't you just doing Nicodemus in one Sunday? And the reason is because there's just too much there. We're already going through John, in many respects, too fast. Um, and, and this is important enough that we needed to divide it into two areas. And so... Right away, when you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, I think that you would, you would see three things that we should identify and understand before we actually dive into the rest of the text. And that would be, certainly Nicodemus himself, who is he? Uh, what's a Pharisee and what is that group all about? And what does it mean to be a ruler of the Jews? In other words, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Maybe you've heard that word. And so I'm going to start today with those three things and then we'll get into, dive into the text. So... First, let's look at Pharisees. When we read the Gospels, we read an awful lot about these, this group of men called Pharisees. And it seems, as we read the Gospels, that they were the enemies of Jesus. So the Pharisees were a large group of men, and I'll talk about that, but they were part of a larger group that included the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, uh, the teachers of the law, the, the scribes, um, and, the, and the priests. So there was this even larger group that I like to refer to as the professional religious people, or perps. So anytime you hear me say perps, that's shorthand for the professional religious people of Jesus' day that he was constantly uh, struggling with. So the Pharisees are part of the perps. And we might even think of the Pharisees in sinister ways, having read the Gospels, kind of imagining uh, a Pharisee. We don't have any pictures of Pharisees, but we might imagine a Pharisee based on the description in here, uh, that they'd have just one large eyebrow that goes all the way across their forehead, and they have snaggled-tooth mouths, and they're walking around in trench coats, and they're very, very sinister. The word Pharisee actually comes from a Hebrew word that means to separate. So they called themselves the separate ones. So one commentator writes this about that. He says, now the Pharisees did not see themselves as separate in an isolationist sense, but in a puritanical sense. In other words, they weren't separate ones, meaning they weren't out and about. They were separate in the sense that they thought very highly of themselves. They thought of themselves as more religious, uh, religiously pious than anybody else. And so they thought of themselves very arrogantly as better than everybody else. And their problem was they didn't so much have a relationship with God as they had rules about how people were supposed to behave. So they were very legalistic, and they were allergic to grace. So you can imagine why Jesus and the Pharisees did not get along. And like I said, they're all men. And Pharisees mostly came from what we would call middle-class backgrounds. And they were not necessarily ordained priests or Levites in the, in the formal sense, but rather were a type of self-anointed religious scholar. And there were a lot of them. Uh, most historians estimate that at this time, in and around what we would geographically call the Fertile Crescent, which includes Judea and Jerusalem, there were maybe six or 7,000 of these uh, Pharisees. Now, you've heard of Pharisees, and you've probably heard of Sadducees, right? So what's the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee? Well, 
Uh, The Sadducees were also a hyper-religious group, and they were bent on rules and legalism, but there was one exception. There was one difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in resurrection, and the Sadducees did not. And therefore, they were, what? Sad, you see. See, that's how you can keep this straight, okay? So bad, but it'll help you. It helps me keep it straight, anyway. I don't have to study anymore. I just remember, oh, they were sad, you see, okay? Anyway, the Sadducees only had about one-tenth the number of Pharisees. There were maybe 500 of them, 600. But they also came from upper-class, wealthy backgrounds, and so they actually had way more power and control over the religious landscape. Back to the Pharisees. The primary reason Jesus did not get along with the Pharisees was their hyper-emphasis on externalizing religion rather than true internal transformation. Remember, Jesus calls them at one point whitewashed tombs. They look really good on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. And the Pharisees were all about optics. They were all about image management. If there were Pharisees alive today, they would be candidates for um, uh, leading uh, image management consulting firms because they're very good at that. They were about power and they were about control and what other people thought of them. And although Jesus does call us to obey the commandments of God, Jesus knows that obedience to the commandments comes from internal transformation of the heart through grace, mercy, and love, and not through some external compulsion, such as rules, that really lead to nothing more than blind compliance. And so Jesus and the Pharisees didn't get along. And John and the other gospel writers often write that the Pharisees about the Pharisees in pretty negative terms. But here, because of Nicodemus' genuine desire for truth and grace and his genuine curiosity about Jesus and his willingness to open himself up to some critique, we see a different attitude in this gospel toward a Pharisee. Um, At at best, it's complimentary, and, and maybe you could even describe it as neutral, but it's not really that negative in terms of of Nicodemus. And to be sure, Nicodemus is coming to challenge Jesus, but he's coming to challenge him in a way where he's open to what Jesus has to say rather than just challenging him in an effort to condemn him and get him out of there. He's really serious about this inquiry. So Nicodemus, he is a Pharisee, so it's a tad odd that he comes to Jesus in curiosity rather than as an adversary, but that's probably why he came at night, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But I think he came at night because he kind of wanted to hide him coming to Jesus in this genuine idea of curiosity from the other Pharisees so that he wouldn't have to answer a lot of stiff-necked questions from his Pharisaical compadres. We also find out that Nicodemus was probably one of the most influential Pharisees alive at that time. He served on the Jewish uh, religious ruling council. He served on the Sanhedrin. Not many Pharisees got to do that, although there were some. And unlike the other Pharisees, we get indications in the rest of this gospel that he had some wealth. So he was probably more wealthy than than other Pharisees. And we also find out later that at great personal risk to his own well-being, Nicodemus actually eventually believed in Jesus. We get that out of chapter 7. And he also, at the end, he helped Joseph of Arimathea um, give Jesus a proper burial in, in a tomb. So he started to align himself in a public way with Jesus that would have led to a lot of ridicule and a lot of scorn and a lot of shunning. One last thing about Nicodemus. Uh, I mentioned this last week when Trey and I were up here. Uh, I think that the last three verses of chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, at least in part, do set us up for this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. Those verses tell us that Jesus knows what's inside every human being. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows our innermost uh, thoughts. And Jesus clearly demonstrates that with Nicodemus in this exchange here. Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter with Nicodemus, if you want to say it that way, which is, in fact, Nicodemus' heart. Nicodemus tries to start a religious conversation awkwardly, and which is probably the only way he could really get things started. But Jesus goes right at him in answer to that with what Nicodemus really knows to, needs to know about, which is salvation and the kingdom of God. Lastly, he's a ruler of the Jews. In other words, Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin consisted of the Jewish high priest. He would have been the president of the Sanhedrin. It also consists of all the chief priests, the 12 Jewish elders, or heads of each of Israel's tribes, 
and then a few scribes and Pharisees or experts in the law for a total of 71 men on the Sanhedrin. So there were 71 of them on this ruling council. If those of you who are on councils or committees or boards and are leaders, how would you like to lead a, a meeting with 70 other people and actually try to get something done? That just doesn't sound like a very much fun. I'd rather watch Netflix. So diving into the text, look at verse 2. Nicodemus comes at night, and he starts with flattery. So why at night? This has been debated for centuries. Some scholars assert that it's a metaphor for Nicodemus' spiritual darkness. He's in spiritual darkness. And so he comes at night as a way to emphasize that. Other people say, well, he was a Pharisee. He was very busy all day, and he had to wait till his leisure time in order to be able to go and do this. Or... Many people say he's simply trying to hide his conversation with Jesus from others, and he would have been able to do that much easier at night than during the day. And I, that's the one I buy into. He's probably hiding. And he comes with flattery. He starts the conversation with, Jesus, we know that you're a teacher and you are from God. That's the way you would start, in their context, a conversation when you were getting ready to challenge somebody's authority. Yes, he is coming with genuine curiosity, and he does want to know. But the only way he knows how, it's built into his DNA. It's how he's been trained for decades. The only way he knows how is to come by challenging Jesus. And so he starts with the flattery, and Jesus knows that. We do that sometimes today, don't we? We're getting ready to challenge somebody, and we'll first build them up a little bit, maybe try to get them off guard, and then we'll go at them. So we do that even today. Well, Jesus, look at his response in verse 3. He's having none of it. It's like he just pushes that question aside. He cuts through the malarkey and he goes right at what's essential. He wants to talk about the kingdom of God and salvation and redemption and new life. He says, Nicodemus, let's just, I'm not going to play that game with you. You need a new life. And the only way you can do that is by being born again. So that's what we're going to talk about. Leslie Newbigin, the great scholar, writes this about this verse, verse 3. Jesus immediately, solemnly, and without preamble, affirms that the question will not be answered on the basis of, of the formulation which Nicodemus has indicated. And I would even argue that that's a nice way of just simply saying that Nicodemus and you and I often ask Jesus the wrong questions. And Jesus is ready to answer the correct questions. And sometimes maybe we have the right topic, maybe we have the right issue but we will even formulate the question in an incorrect way. Jesus comes right at us, and he cuts through the malarkey, and he tells us exactly what we need. And he says to Nicodemus, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that's an ancient Greek colloquialism or way of saying that you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot be a part of the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You cannot be part of God's redeemed people unless you're born again. And remember, this kingdom of God that he's speaking about, he's, he's talking about a kingdom that starts now. Yes, the kingdom is a future kingdom. And you and I pine for that kingdom. We pine for the day that Jesus comes again and ushers in the new Jerusalem. That is true. But I would also suggest that the American Christian church tends to focus way too much on the future part of this kingdom of God and not enough about the reality of the present kingdom of God that we are called to be God's people doing God's business and God's work right now in this world and not sitting on our hands waiting for the glory that is to come. The glory is here now. He is with us now. We're still in this messed up, jacked up world, but we're a part of God's kingdom right now. And it's because he loves us. And then I, would just, I want to read verses 3 through 6, because verses 3 through 6, this is probably why we can't do the rest of the Nicodemus story today. There is a tremendous amount of debate and consternation about what is really meant by some of the words and phrases in 3 through 6. So here you go. Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, I know for some of you this will seem a little bit like theological hair-splitting, but it's really important, and a lot of people really do want to know and want some direction about what's going on here. It seems like this is totally code-speak between these two people. What's really going on here? And, and I will tell you up front that on one of these issues, the issue that we'll get to in verse, verses 5 and 6, I would suggest that I'm probably in the minority when it comes to what I've concluded about what Jesus is saying here. And it's not that no one agrees with me. It is a serious position. Uh, but it's not the majority position. And I will tell you, I think I have good reasons for my interpretation that are rooted right here in the text and in the context. And I'll explain that later. But as you're guessing, there's a lot of layers here in these four verses. And so I'm asking you for the next eight to ten minutes, focus and hang in there with me. And if you're a person who enjoys caffeine and you have a caffeine delivery device with you right now, I would suggest that maybe you take a sip of it so that you can get through these next few minutes. So let's talk first about what it means to be born again. Yes, if you've done your word studies, you know that that word translated again primarily means from above. There's a couple of biblical translations that actually have it, unless you are born from above, rather than born again. But it means born again. There are other meanings for this word. They're not as common, but they are real meanings for this word, depending on the context. So when you look up a word in a dictionary, very often what you'll find is that the word has multiple definitions. One, two, three, four, five. Well, the first definition is the one that's most commonly used. So for this Greek word, the first definition would be from above. But the second definition is, again, the third definition is anew. So it's a real interpretation. And given the context of this conversation, specifically Nick's response in verse 4, I call him Nick because I'm on kind of an intimate basis with him, but his response in verse 4, it means again. He takes that word to mean again or anew. If Nick, Nicodemus understood this word to mean in this instant from above, he never would have responded with, Verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He never would have said that if he's thinking that it means from above. Clearly, he receives Jesus' message as some sort of a second birth. And it confuses him. He's incredulous. His follow-up question can sound even kind of funny or ironic or sarcastic. I think there's some sarcasm going on in this exchange. But his, his follow-up question demonstrates that he's really confused. But he's also challenging Jesus. He's pushing back. It's the way he's wired. It's the way his training has led him. It's, it's his DNA. It's his job to challenge Jesus in the midst of it. And so he says, maybe with a tinge of sarcasm, how can I as adults enter back into my mother's womb. And Jesus says in verse 5, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he or she cannot enter, cannot see, cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. And now we have the primary debate in these verses. Born of water and of the Spirit. What does that mean? Years ago, the first time I sat down to dissect what it means to be born of the water and born of the Spirit... There were nine different, legitimate, acceptable, scholarly positions for what it means to be born of the water and the spirit. There's, it's very hard to be exact about this, but I'm going to narrow it down for us, and I think, based on context, that my interpretation is correct, although it's not the majority one. It's the second most popular one. Um, here's the challenge that we have. The majority opinion, not everybody, but the majority opinion of this understand water in the Jewish context to mean cleansing and baptism, okay? For instance, let me read to you just one little passage in the Old Testament that would help you understand why they would see water as cleansing and baptism. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, God says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. But again, context, I think, when you read further, context dictates that Jesus is saying something slightly different here. And, and again, I'm not the only one who shares this view. What I think Jesus means by water is that one is born physically first and then must be born again as an act of the Spirit of God in them. So you're born first physically and then born again spiritually. And here's why I think this is the correct interpretation. In the very next verse, Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This is a rhetorical device known as parallelism going on here, which every Jewish teacher and rabbi understood, parallelism. He's equating being born of the flesh with being born of water. Being born of water, it seemed, there seems to be a lot of water at physical birth. That's being born of the flesh, which is unredeemed. When you are, and I are born into this world, we are born into sin. We are born as sinners. Do, do not get caught up in the misunderstanding that you and I are born as clean slates, and then when we sin, that's when we became sinners. That's not how it works. We are born into sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. The Bible is very clear about that. We are born into it. It's something that was handed down to us from what's called our federal heads, Eve and Adam. We are born into this corruption. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You need to be born, certainly, of the flesh. You're born condemned, but now you must be born again of the Spirit of God. And it's going to be a miraculous movement of God in, in your life that's going to make that happen. So there you have it. I, I think it fits the literary context better than the other interpretations. But I also know... That in a sense, this is just theological hair splitting because, now listen, either way, either way, here's Jesus' point. We must be born of God. That's the key. We must be born of God. We must be reborn. We must be born again. We must be born from above. We must be born in the Spirit in order to be saved. And that happens by believing in Jesus, the Son of God. That happens by placing your faith and trust in Jesus. That's what Jesus is getting at with Nicodemus. Here's what he's saying to Nicodemus, because this is all the presuppositions that Nicodemus comes to him with. He's saying, Nicodemus, good teaching does not get you into the kingdom of God. He says, knowledge does not get you into the kingdom of God. He says, serving on the Sanhedrin or the elder board at church does not get you into the kingdom of God. Status, power, or wealth do not get you in. Good works do not get you in. Advanced degrees do not get you in. Ignorance does not get you in. By the way, that's a legitimate pushback. I am stunned at the number of people who think they're going to enter the kingdom of God because they are ignorant about the kingdom of God. Therefore, they're innocent. That's not how it works. Poverty does not get you into the kingdom of God. Activism does not get you into the kingdom of God. Self-esteem, self-awareness, self-actualization, and self-achievement do not get you in. Wayne Winter, our pastor at Redemption Alhambra says this, Jesus is greater than our categories, our philosophies, and our self-justifications. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. And again, John, the writer of this gospel and Jesus, make it excruciatingly clear that there is only one legitimate path to the kingdom of God, and that is to believe in Jesus. Uh, I always have to have a little story, so hang in there with me. Maybe you could take a little rest here. But two weeks ago, it was I was ruminating on this passage thinking about it as I'm driving down the street. And I saw a bumper sticker. I'd never seen this bumper sticker before. Saw it for the first time. I'm, 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 I have some tension about whether or not that bumper sticker is actually in our parking lot or not. In a way, that would be good. In a way, it would be bad because <laughs> I'm about to bag on this bumper sticker. Anyway, uh, the bumper sticker said this, believe that there is good in the world. Is there? I mean, I'm looking around. The world seems pretty wicked to me. And I know right away some of you are just, oh, Frank, you're, you're a pessimist. You're a glass half empty kind of guy. You're, you're that guy that believes that every silver lining has a cloud. Yes, 
There wouldn't be a silver lining without the cloud. I'm all about the cloud, yes. Exactly. The world, look around the world, it seems pretty jacked up and unsafe and filled with evil. I think simple observation screams at us that the world and people are not basically good. Let me ask you a question, and I want you to try to answer this, not out loud, but seriously wrestle with this. Why do you and I place such an emphasis on security, safety, insurance, power, status, and living without risk if the world is so good? Why do we have security systems? Why do we, have, why do we lock our doors? Why do we live without trust of other people? Why is it when we go to buy a car, we're sure they're getting us one way or another? And you're trying hard to protect yourself from that. By the way, you really can't. They're smarter at that than we are. But why? Answer that question. Why do we place such an emphasis on security, safety, insurance, power, and status if the world is so good? You cannot answer that question apart from the fact that the world is evil. A few months ago when we were going through 1 John, I remember Tyler Thompson preached in that series and he preached about how the key is not necessary. It's important to believe. It's important to have faith. But the key isn't um, necessarily our belief or our faith, but rather what we place it in. Because we can believe all we want in something. But if it doesn't have the ability to do what, it, what we want it to do, all the faith in the world in that thing isn't going to make a difference. And the problem is, is that we are all people of faith. We are all people that have beliefs. We just may not believe in God, but you believe in something. You believe in yourself. You believe in the government. You believe in whatever it is. You believe in something. You have faith in something. You're sure about something. But it's dubious. If I, if I believe, for instance, this music stand can give me a ride home after church, no matter how hard I believe, no matter how much faith I have that this music stand can do that, it doesn't matter because it's never going to be able to give me a ride home. My faith and my belief in the Arizona Coyotes winning does not change whether or not they are going to win. Either they're capable of winning or they're not. The depth and profoundness of my belief doesn't make it true. And believe me, I have tried very, very hard. It just doesn't work. Believing that there is good in this world and that this good will somehow save you and protect you and that you can trust in it is ultimately believing in the wrong thing. Those of you who say that the world and people are basically good, I hope you realize that it makes you a hypocrite whenever, at any time, you do not trust somebody else. I thought they were basically good. Are you able to live with 100% trust of other people in this world? You see, the prince of darkness rules this world, and no matter how hard we believe that worldly or human goodness will prevail, will not make it so. Look around. Your faith, your trust, your belief is only as good as that which you place it in. And this is what Nicodemus was finally starting to understand and reconcile in his mind and heart. He needed to quit believing in his ability to keep the law, to teach the law, and to cleanse himself from his sin. And he needs to believe in Jesus. And it's what you and I must wrestle with and understand, and I know I hear this all the time, yeah, but Frank, I sincerely believe in basic human goodness. Oh, well, sincerely, that changes everything. Actually not. It, as our, lead, our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say, it just means that you would be sincerely wrong. What Jesus did on the cross and at his resurrection, it simply ends this conjecture. He paid for the evil, he paid for the sin, he paid for the wickedness, the sinfulness of human hearts. And by doing so, he gave new, restored, and redeemed life. We talk about drop-the-mic moments. This is the only legitimate drop-the-mic moment in history, the cross and the resurrection. Jesus is what we need, not some feel-good bumper sticker. So the question is and remains, are you born again? Let me ask it this way. Many people want a second chance, and I get that. Second chances are good. Can I get an amen? It's not a trick amen. It's a legitimate amen, okay? But let me ask you this question. Would you rather have a second chance where you can just mess it up again? Or do you want a new life by the power of the risen Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit? Do you want a clean slate, or 
you want a brand new slate that is of and by the power of Christ. Um, some of you are old enough to remember uh, laundry detergent commercials on television. And, and there was this typical commercial that all of them did where you had uh, two white shirts that were stained with grease or blood or wine or whatever it is. And they would wash one in this washer and the other one over here, Brand X and Tide. And I'm not picking on Tide, it's just everybody knows Tide. So Brand X and Tide. And then they pull the shirts out of the washing machine. And the shirt that's pulled out from Brand X, you can still see the shadow of the stain there. It's clean, but not really. You probably wouldn't wear it with as much pride as you wore the clean one. But the Tide one, they pull that out and it is perfectly white. It's beautiful. How did that happen? Well, you got to buy Tide and use Tide. Here's how it happened. They used a different shirt. <laughs> it's not that hard. It's a brand new shirt. That's the gospel. Do, do you want your sin cleaned up, but there's still that shadow of it there? Or do you want God to look at you by the power of the resurrected Christ and see Nothing but pureness, holiness, and righteousness. You are cleansed of your sin in a way that you are a new creation. You're not the same old creation with the shadow of your sin. Yes, I know we're still living in this fallen world and we have to deal with that. I'm still sinning. I know that. But when God sees me, he sees Jesus and he sees a new creation. Same with you if you are in Christ. We're brand new. That's a beautiful thing. And, and here's the beauty of that being, we're not a clean slate, we're a new slate. Here's the beauty of that. Read Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of God? Not one thing. Nothing. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you. That word marvel is really interesting. Yes, I'm going to go there. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Do not marvel. In, for Advent this year, uh, for the four weeks of Advent and then Christmas Eve, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2. And one of the themes in Luke chapter 1 and 2 is this word, this Greek word translated as marvel or wonder or astonishment. It's, it's a really interesting word. In Luke 1 and 2, the word is used this way. The people marveled, were astonished by, were admiring, were in wonder about what was happening and they saw that it was good and they embraced it. They ran toward it. It was, it was unbelievable and it's good and I want it. Jesus is using that same word here, marvel, astonishment, wonder, but he's using it in a way in this context that says, do not marvel at this in a way where You've been raised as this Pharisee. You've been trained as this Pharisee. It's in your DNA to go for the law and go for, go for rules and to push back against me. Don't marvel at my grace and my story as being so new and so different that it distracts you from embracing it. Don't say, oh, I'm so stunned by this. I'm so astonished by this that I have to go away and think about it for a while. He's saying, don't let your astonishment get in the way of coming to me. Do not marvel at this in a way that will keep you, that will become an obstacle from coming to me. Don't use it as an excuse. A lot of people do this today. They love to entertain the concept of the gospel. They love to debate it and discuss it academically or philosophically. They do it as a form of entertainment. They might even describe the gospel story. That's beautiful and awesome. But they often do it in a way that is designed to deflect their genuine need for a savior. They want to talk about it, but they won't embrace it. And then verse 8, this whole idea of the wind and the spirit. This is truth. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to understand everything about it. He's saying, what I'm telling you is true, 
But if you, if you think that the only way you can embrace this is to understand every last single thing about it, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree, Nicodemus. Jesus uses a worldly example, the wind, to help Nicodemus and us understand how the Holy Spirit operates. Like the wind, we struggle to understand where it starts or what it's going to do or where it comes from. The Spirit of God also moves in a way that cannot be controlled or understood. And yes, I know we have meteorologists now and science and all of that. We have weather technology, so we do understand some things about the wind, but they didn't. They didn't understand anything about it. They just knew it was real. And by the way, you and I still can't control the wind. If we could, why do we get so freaked out by hurricanes, tornadoes, and tropical storms? We may understand it, but we still can't do anything about it. Jesus is telling Nicodemus and you and I, the Holy Spirit must mysteriously and miraculously work in our lives because God is sovereign and we are not. And with this wind illustration, he's telling Nicodemus, you accept this concept and many other things in your life, but you, but you can't possibly fall into the trap now of demanding answers to unanswerable questions that will ultimately keep you from seeing the kingdom of God. And ultimately, Nicodemus does believe. Eventually, he does. So I'll close with this. It's interesting. Uh, Nicodemus thought that what he was doing that night was he was going to go and talk to a mortal human being who happened to be doing some pretty good signs and teaching some different and interesting things about God. That's what he thought. And we realize that by reading verse 2. He says, Jesus, we know that you're a teacher and that you are sent from God, but you're not God. What Nicodemus does not consider at first is the fact that Jesus is not simply a teacher or rabbi, but that he is God. I, I talk to, again, I talk to a lot of people, and when they find out that I'm a pastor, it's interesting how people react. Often they'll say, oh, pardon my French, because they've been cussing up a storm. And I'm, I, I don't speak French, but I understood every word you said. So, um. <laughs> But it's interesting how they'll react. One of the ways they'll react often is they'll say this. They'll say, Oh, well, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I, I don't, there's something there, but I'm a spiritual person. That spirit is really in me. And really what I'm doing is I'm just kind of walking through life, trying to figure out what's right and wrong, you know, for me, what's in my heart, what's right and wrong. Well, you understand that practically and manifestly you are now God, if you're the one who decides it. And, and I always ask a couple of questions there. I'll say, well, tell me what your authoritative or foundational text is for that. And almost always the answer will boil down to, once they kind of hem and haw a little bit, they'll boil down that, well, it's really me. It's me and my perspective, my perception, my understanding of things. It's, it's me. And then I say, well, okay, so you understand that everybody else is doing that too. So what happens when what's in your heart is different from what's in the heart of the person next to you and those hearts are colliding, those perspectives, those perceptions are colliding? What do you do then? Who's right? Who's win? Who, who wins? Who's wrong? What do you do then? Vishal Mangalwadi writes of this. He says, if everyone is entitled to their own truth, then there is no need for and there will be no Community, compromise, empathy, or compassion. When we begin to think that the only right thing is what we determine is right and what's in our heart, that begins to lead to isolation. Doesn't that feel like where we are today? <laughs> it does. And, and, and we know that God didn't wire us that way because now we're on social media looking for community, but we're only interested in community that does what? Agrees with us. So we're looking for echo chambers, and we have this new thing called confirmation bias. And the companies are designed to look at what you're looking at and just feed you more of that so you never, you never get to see any contrary opinion. And Jesus rises above all of that because he is the authoritative text. He is the text that got nailed to the cross and rose three days later, came busting out of that tomb, which gives him the authority to be our authoritative text for us to look at him and understand that by looking at him, we can live in relationship and community and in unity and in harmony with other sinners by his power and his filling of the Holy Spirit. Every passage 
in this gospel ends up asking the same question. Do you believe in Jesus? And we're going to ask that question every single week. Let's pray together. Lord God, again, we thank you for your word and its truth. And I just pray that your spirit would move among all people. Stir their hearts. Open their eyes. Help them to hear. God, stir my heart. Open my eyes. Help me to hear. We, we read earlier this morning in Psalm 19 that we all have hidden sin. Even those of us who believe we have hidden sin, we, we need you to open our hearts and our minds, to open our hearts, our eyes, our, our ears. So help us to do that, God. Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Christ, lead, guide, and direct us. Father, through your Son, remind us of our salvation and our forgiveness, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at that time. We're going to sing one more song together, and we're going to take communion together, the Lord's Supper. We're taking it together individually. Yes, I know. And I do pine for the day when we can all come to the table again. No idea when that's going to happen. feel like it's going to be a while. But in the meantime, we can, in this room together, and those of you on the live stream, you can take your elements, and you can recall that Jesus instituted this sacred time for us where we confess that we're sinners in need of a Savior, and we celebrate the fact that we have a Savior, and we proclaim to the world that we have aligned ourselves with that Savior. So let's do that now, either in this room or at home.
coming and worshiping with us today um, and this week. Uh, it's an honor to be able to worship with you guys. I'm Trey. I'm one of the pastors here. Today's Orientation Sunday. So that means if you're new or if you just want to get some more information about our church, I'll be in the back at the Connect Desk and we'll take a little tour around the church. It'll be about uh, 10 minutes and then you can go and get some lunch. But if you want some more, if you have any more questions, you can ask me. Um, but uh, let me uh, say over you the benediction um, as you go into the week. This is from Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Only I'm going to say it as if it's over us. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Thank you guys for worshiping with us. Go have a great week. We'll see you next week.